Welcome to Talking History with Farnham U3A History Group. Today, Michael Abair talks about how the West was lost, or won, depending on your point of view. Part C. Wild West character we're going to look at, I'd say he was a real, a real life American Robin Hood in a way, Jesse Woodrow James. Jesse James. He was born in Clay County, Missouri in 1847. His father was an itinerant preacher, yet another preacher, who died very, very soon after Jesse was born. The family was so poor that the congregation apparently collected money to help them survive. Jesse's mother then remarried but a very few months later, lost her second husband. She then married a doctor. Well, I suppose the first two had died of illnesses, so if she married a doctor, that perhaps, <laughs> perhaps that might be a bit better. And uh, that gave Jesse um, half-brothers who subsequently joined the Missouri Bushwhackers, a sort of guerrilla army, really. Federal militiamen came looking for them while Jesse was ploughing a field. He was beaten, prodded with sabres, but refused to say where his half-brothers were. The doctor, that's the stepfather, was hoisted up a tree on a rope and then agreed to take the militia to his sons. Must have been a difficult decision. A couple of the bushwhackers were killed, but the half-brothers did escape. Jesse joined the guerrillas the next year and was apparently shot through the chest, but survived. Jesse helped rob a stagecoach and a train when 25 federal soldiers were killed. 125 more soldiers were sent to find the murderers, which they did, but in a battle, every one of that 125 were killed. A little, a little bit later, Jesse was again shot in the chest and again survived. It's unclear whether he was involved in a daring bank robbery, uh, robbery at Liberty, Missouri in 1866, when $57,000 was taken. You're talking millions today, many millions today. It was the first daylight bank robbery in the United States during peacetime, and was a template for many, many more. Over the next 15 years, Jesse, now the gang leader, robbed banks of over $136,000 that's well over $15 million in today's money. Way over. He did help others though, often handing out money to poor people. I think he was supposedly remembering that his family had been saved by, um, by help from uh, strangers. Eventually, Jesse James was shot in the back of the head by one of his own gang for the $1,000 reward money while he was standing on a chair dusting a picture at home. And I say to you all men, Men, we shouldn't be doing housework. <laughs> um, we've talked about killers and bank robbers, but what about the women? Well, women faced terrible hardships on the wagon trains, and even when they reached their destinations, had a life of hardship, toil, and trouble. 
It wasn't just the cooking and the cleaning. They had to bring up the families, often very large families, with little or, or no medical help. They and the children all die, often died very young. But we do need to look at Martha Jane Cannery, better known throughout the West as Calamity Jane. Martha Jane Cannery. She claimed, note the word claimed, to have been born um, in Missouri in 1852. Shall we be polite to her and say that uh, a lot of her recollections are a little unreliable? I won't say she was a, yeah, all right, she was a liar. <laughs> she claims to have been born in 1852. We know that at the age of 12, she was in Virginia City in Montana. And by the age of 16, she was definitely a prostitute, consorting with soldiers and the railroad crews building the Union Pacific Line. In her highly unreliable autobiography, she claimed to have been a US Army scout from 1870 to 1876. Uh, there are no records showing that any military service existed. She also claimed to have been employed with Custer in Arizona, but we can categorically state that Custer never went to Arizona, let alone served there. Her claims to have been an, India an Indian fighter, a miner, a stagecoach driver, hotel keeper, and an ox team driver. Let's keep an open mind on those. She certainly was a vagrant, an alcoholic, and a prostitute. A camp follower, she was illiterate, and as we've said, a liar. She definitely was in Deadwood in 1876, but her story about cornering the assassin of Wild Bill Hickok with a meat cleaver is entire fantasy, we're sure. As were many of her claims to have married Bill Hickok in 1870. However, she did nurse smallpox victims in the Black Hills of Dakota in the late 1870s. She was married on numerous occasions. She may have had a son in 1882, there was definitely a daughter born in 1887, five years later, and deposited in a convent eight years later because she was inconvenient. Jane wandered the West, generally drunk, and appeared driving a wagon and team through Buffalo, New York in 1901. She went back to Dakota and died there of alcohol poisoning and inflammation of the bowel in 1903. She was certainly one of the world's greatest publicists, but there is one thing that is absolutely certain completely certain about her, she was very little like Doris Day. <laughs> <laughs> Next one we want to look at is big-nosed Kate. <laughs> now, you may have heard about big-nosed Kate, also known as Kate Fisher, also known as Kate Elder, Elder, E-L-D-E-R. She was generally known as Doc Holliday's woman. She was a feisty character, she burned down a hotel in Fort Griffin, Texas, to rescue her man from a lynch mob. As with most of the characters from the old Wild West, fact and fiction have become merged together, and it's really very difficult to know exactly what is and what isn't true. Her real name was Mary Catherine Harony, H-A-R-O-N-Y. She was born in Budapest, we can date it, 7th of May, 1850. Her father, a doctor, emigrated with his wife to the United States in 1862, when Kate, of course, was 12. They settled in Davenport, Iowa, but soon after that, both parents died, probably one of the many, many diseases that were so common at the time, cholera, scarlet fever, typhoid, perhaps, 
A man named Gustavus Susanhill became a guardian for both Kate and her sister, uh, but it, Kate ran away from home. There were suggestions of not very nice things going on. We don't really know any details, probably a good thing. She assumed the name then of Kate Fisher, to be sure to escape from him. She married a man called Simon Melvin and had a baby son, but both died very mysteriously. She headed west, calling herself Kate Elder by then, and ended up working in a sporting house in Wichita, owned by James Earl, Wyatt's brother. The next year, she was working in a Dodge City dance hall. Wyatt Earp may well have had a fling with her, but certainly it was through Wyatt that she met Doc Holliday. Soon, they were inseparable, and she moved with him to Las Vegas, to New Mexico, and then in 1880, they moved to Tombstone, Arizona. She claimed, and it's probably true, that she was at the OK Corral when the gunfight took place. She seems to have got fed up with Doc Holliday because she then gave the testimony uh, that he'd been involved in this stagecoach robbery, which was complete fiction. She then seemed to get friendly with Wyatt Earp again and helped him in a couple of revenge killings. She then dropped out of sight a bit until 1888, when she apparently married one George M. Cummings. But seven years later, they'd separated and she was working as a housekeeper to a man known as John Howard. She stayed there until he died in 1930, then went to the Pioneer's Retirement Home in Prescott, where she died at the age of 90 in 1940. Surprisingly recent. Another Wild West character, a woman character, was Ma Baker, who had four sons, all of them villains. They really were. She was around a bit after some of these Wild West characters, but followed a very similar pattern. She was, born in she was born Arizona Donnie in Ashgrove, Missouri, on the 8th of October, 1873. And she died in a gunfight involving the fledgling FBI on the 18th of January, 1935. There is no evidence at all that she really was a criminal. I do stress evidence. But rumour had it uh, that she was the leader of the so-called uh, Barker gang. Kate Barker was one of the aliases that she used. The gang started off with highway robbery, and from there their activities got more and more serious. J. Edgar Hoover, who set up the FBI, called her the most vicious, dangerous, and resourceful criminal uh, of the decade, and put up a reward for her arrest. She and one of her sons were both killed in a huge gunfight in uh, Florida, where local townspeople all came out to watch, and some even had picnics during the, pic during the shooting. And they say things have changed in America. <laughs> Want to now look at George Armstrong Custer. I don't think we can cover the, the West without looking at Custer. Back in 1876, that's the year Jesse James was at his peak robbing banks, while Bill Hickok was killed and the Indian Wars were at their height, the most famous clash between the white men and the Native Americans took place at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. The origins of this battle were two years previously when Custer had taken his 7th Cavalry into the Black Hills of Dakota. That was, of course, land that had been promised in perpetuity to the Sioux Indians under the Treaty of 1868, just 10 years previously. Custer's expedition was to establish if there was gold in them, there are hills. And the answer was an emphatic yes. So in flooded hundreds of miners, and the army did absolutely nothing to stop them. So the land had been promised in perpetuity to the, to the Indians, 
uh, and then they didn't do anything to stop the, the prospectors going in. The Indians protested, and a commission was set up to try to persuade the Indians to move from the land that had been considered worthless. It was considered worthless and only fit for Indians to live off, which I think is rather, rather a telling phrase. The Indians were offered $6 million to go away, which they refused to do. We've got to bear in mind that money meant absolutely nothing to Native Americans. So Congress just appropriated the land. The Indians were commanded to come to one of the meeting places. But even if they wanted to do so, they couldn't possibly have done so because it was the middle of a really bad, hard winter and nobody could get around anywhere in the blizzards. So as soon as the weather improved, albeit only slightly, Sheridan instructed the army to move in against Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. Custer had, had great um, aspirations of being president, and uh, he was really looking for the PR side that would come from it, and uh, the, uh, the acknowledgement that uh, he was a wonderful, wonderful man. And that's what, what really drove him. It was generally accepted that once spring came, it would be impossible to round up all the Indians. It became very clear that they must be in the little Bighorn River area somewhere. It was soon agreed that Custer would advance up the Rosebud Valley, while other commanders advanced along the Yellowstone River. Then they would all meet at a pre-arranged spot. It's very significant that none of the army commanders had any idea at all how many Native Americans were out there. Little did they know that it wasn't just the Sioux that were out there, but also the Blackfoot, the Cheyenne, the Brule, the Sans Arc. Overall, there were probably well over 10,000 Indians, of whom almost a half would have been warriors. They were indeed camping in the valley of the Little Bighorn, which the Indians knew as Greasy Grass. The entire 7th Cavalry at that time comprised 31 officers, 566 enlisted men, 35 Indian scouts, and about a dozen others, cooks and hangers-on. Custer, who was known to the Indians as, uh, uh, as long hair, uh, although he had actually had it cut most severely shortly before the, the battle and before he died, uh, he knew fairly early on where the Indians were, uh, were camped and decided to make a reconnaissance in force and uh, fight the battle as events dictated. When Custer scouts told him there was a very big Indian village up ahead, he was delighted. Custer's luck, he said, apparently. We've got him this time. Custer didn't believe that there were enough Indians in the world to whip his 7th Cavalry. He arranged his troops in three groups, planning to attack simultaneously from three different directions. Major Reno, who had never fought Indians before, led his men at the gallop straight into a large force of Indians with his 125 men but after 10 minutes, at least half of them were dead. There were 225 men in the group that Custer himself led, and he sent a message to the third column, led by Major Benteen, to come quickly or miss the fun. But unfortunately, Benteen was tied down and couldn't possibly join Custer. Indeed, Benteen couldn't understand why Custer didn't come to help him and reinforce his men. Soon, Custer's men were in the thick of it and outnumbered by at least 10 to one and they retreated to higher ground. The line of the retreat can be seen today by the line of gravestones marking the places where each soldier died. Next, Crazy Horse attacked Custer's rear. Uh, Custer died, along with most of his men, on the, on the riverside of what is now called Custer Hill. 
still expecting the other columns to reinforce him. The fight lasted about an hour, with the remaining soldiers fighting hard and their guns jamming from the heat of repeated use. When the guns jammed, they fought hand to hand, but at the end, the soldiers were all dead. Reno and Bentine could hear the guns and thought Custer was giving the, well, giving the, the Indians a real whipping, but never did go to his assistance. The following day, they went to the battlefield and found every single body mutilated and virtually all scalped. All that is, except one, except Custer's, whose body was sitting upright and not touched. News of the Custer, uh, the Custer massacre reached the east on Independence Day, as Americans were celebrating their first centennial. Retribution wasn't long in coming, and when it did, it pretty well meant the, Indian, the end of the Indian nation. Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse led their men over the Canadian border to what they thought was safety. Crazy Horse was bayoneted to death shortly afterwards. Sitting Bull was arrested in December 1890 and was shot through the head as he was being taken away. During, uh, during 14 years after the Battle of the Little Bighorn, the army used any and every opportunity to goad the Native Americans into causing trouble. And on the occasions that they reacted, slaughtered them. And as often as not, got a medal for it. In the autumn of 1890, near the reservation um, town of Pine Ridge, South Dakota, the 7th Cavalry, that's the same cavalry, 7th Cavalry that had been uh, so badly mauled at the Bighorn, mustered for the kill. They brought cannons to avoid any chance of things going wrong. They rode to attack a group of so-called Sioux renegades, but all they found was a group of 200 men, women and children doing nothing they shouldn't have been doing. The army killed them off anyway, and next morning dumped the bodies into a mass grave. This became known as the Battle of the Wounded Knee, although it could hardly be called a battle when only one side fought. This was really the end of the majestic Native American Indians. Some lived on, as they do now, mostly in reservations, but effectively this was the tragic end. And that is essentially, and in a much abbreviated form, how the West was won. But from the point of view of the Native Americans, that's how the West was lost. It does occur to me, one or two things, it occurs to me that many Americans seem to need, and I, if there are any Americans in the room, I, I don't mean any offence by this. It does seem to me that, that Americans do seem to need someone to fear. Uh, I don't mean Americans individually, but as a race. Uh, here it was the Native Americans. In a small way, a smaller way, it was the British. It was the Afro-Caribbean Negroes. It was the Hispanic, Hispanic people from Mexico and Central America. It was communists nowadays Muslims. I don't understand quite why, but that's, I think, a sad, a sad point. There are similarities between, uh, between what we see today and what happened then. And that's the story of how the West was lost. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is published by the Mr. T Podcast Studio.